Hey everybody, thanks for joining us here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So Trinity MTB has been really getting a ton of well-deserved attention on the internet of late for their super wild high pivot enduro slash downhill bike prototypes. And so we decided it was time to get Mick Williams back on the podcast to talk about everything they've been up to. And he brought with him Chase Warner, the originator of the first Trinity prototype to talk about the whole story behind the brand and where they've gone with their latest V2 prototype since Mick and I last chatted a while back and a whole bunch more. And along the way, we get into just how cool it is that they've been sharing the whole development process of this bike with the world, which is something that we as consumers don't normally get to see instead of just getting the information about what the final product is when a new bike drops. We also get into it about their construction techniques, what's going on with the upcoming v3 prototype just a little bit when you might be able to buy one and a whole lot more but before we get into that i just also want to take a quick minute to encourage you to check out our blister membership which includes a bunch of really good deals on bike and ski gear including 15 percent off wheels and cockpit parts from we are one composites and also lets you send us an email to chat about your next purchase of a bike or a pair of skis or ski boots or even just stuff like suspension setup whatever it is that you are wondering will help you out so check out the link in the show notes sign up for blister membership and let us help you with your gear and with that let's get right to my conversation with mick and chase Well, Mick and Chase, great to have you on. Mick, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas. Chase, nice to have you on here for the first time. How are you today and where are you two today? Uh, yeah, I'm coming to you from, uh, from Australia. So um, same location as last time down on the surf coast, um, which is yeah about an hour south of, of Melbourne. And uh, I'm in uh, a small town in California, northern California called Redding, um, pretty close to the Oregon border. Right on. Well, yeah, good to have you both here. And then, so for folks who didn't hear it, Mick had you on last year to talk about your company, Williams Racing Products. In that episode, we touched a bit on the V1 Trinity bike prototype, but uh, we'll do a whole lot more here on kind of the backstory of the company and the rest history of the bikes and what you guys have been up to since we last spoke, because there's been a whole lot going on since then as well. As we talked about last time, this is one of the more interesting bike projects going on out there, I think it's fair to say. And uh, yeah, a lot happening with this. So I guess just to kick it off, uh, sort of throw this one to Chase. I mean, the Trinity bike was your kind of brainchild originally. Where did this whole project start and about when are we talking here? Yeah. So it started back in 2018. Um, I got back into mountain biking uh, via my brother-in-law. And so I just instantly fell in love again. And part of kind of how I like to nerd out on my hobbies is just dive into all the engineering and <clears throat> pretty much any little bit of detail of understanding like what makes the products that I enjoy. And, uh, and so with that and kind of my knack for just wanting to always like make my own thing, I just started drawing sketches of different bikes and different suspension layouts and trying to understand 
what affects what and why something would work and why something wouldn't work. Um, and so I had some like just early, like, yeah, sketchbook sketches and then started to do stuff in, uh, in illustrator, um, just cause that was a program that I was comfortable with. And, um, and then I kind of got turned on to fusion 360 and also found linkage X3 at the same time. And I have a background in graph design and, uh, 3d modeling and whatnot. And so it just kind of dove right into trying to just like, what would it take to make my own bike and see, you know, how good could, could I make something? Um, and that's really where it all stemmed from. It's just like kind of just the internal thought of like, you know, is it possible for me to do, you know, like to do a handmade bike on my own? And then, yeah, it just kind of snowballed from there. And yeah, it, uh, simple emails got in touch with Nigel and then that got in touch with Mick and kind of here we are. Yeah. So snowballed, I think is a bit of an understatement maybe. Uh, but so, I mean, I think that's kind of a common thread that we've heard a bunch of times from a bunch of people we've talked about on here who have just started of not necessarily had uh, too much of a background in engineering or bike design, but decided, you know, Hey, like I, I had some ideas. Let's see what we can do with this. And then one thing leads to another. Um, but then, yeah. So Nigel, who you referenced, uh, not on today, unfortunately, but is kind of the fabricator for the project, I guess. And uh, how did you get in touch with him? Where did that connection get forged? Yeah. So I've known of Nigel for, at this point, known of him, not known him, but known of him for probably about 10 plus years or so. My dad was a super big car guy. Um, and so that was kind of like my main hobby growing up was cars and working on cars with him. And when I got into high school, um, I discovered drifting and was just kind of instantly obsessed with it. And, and also found the blog speed hunters and uh, Nigel had, through his youth project had gotten featured on speed hunters. And so that's kind of where I got introduced to him. And so then I had been from there following his own, like his personal blog and pretty much everything that he had done. Cause the work that he produces is just awesome. I mean, if you haven't seen his youth project, which is a hand built chassis from scratch for, uh, in the States, what would be a, a Tacoma pickup truck or in Australia and uh, a Toyota Hilux, uh, or low Lux. <laughs> yeah. Low Lux. Um, Anyway, it's a, it's an amazing, amazing project. And so anyway, I just had been kind of following him via social media for years and years and years. And when I started to feel really close to having something that would be ready to make as far as like the bike design, and I pretty much had it completely modeled up in Fusion 360, like down to nuts, bearings, everything, at least so I thought had everything figured out um, was feeling ready to try and actually make it, but I don't have the resources or the skill set to actually physically make it. And, and I didn't have the time to dedicate to doing that on my own as far as like learning how to weld, figuring out a frame jig, all that kind of stuff. And I kind of, in my following of Nigel, he had kind of progressed from 
doing stuff with cars to doing stuff with motorcycles to then kind of showing his interest in mountain bikes. And so on a whim on a lunch break, uh, I shot him an email and said, Hey, like I have this idea. I, you know, I know what you're capable of. If you're, if you've ever been interested in making your own bike, uh, would you be interested in doing it based off of my idea? And I think a couple of days went by and I got a response from him, which I was completely surprised about. I wasn't, wasn't expecting it at all. And, uh, he was super keen and it turned out that all the ideas that I had had were all things that he had thought of as well. And were interested in having in his own bike. And, uh, and so we just kind of hit it off from there. And I think that was, I think I emailed him in 2019, like middle of the year or so. Um, and we've been pretty much talking every day since. <laughs> wow. So yeah. So kind of three years from that point. And then I guess Nick, that's probably about where you come in. Is that fair? No. Nah, so I, um, I came in a fair way later, I guess. So I, um, yeah, I wasn't aware of the, I'm not sure how far back we should pro- we should go with it, but, um, I guess, we may we may have discussed some of this stuff like last time in the potty, but the WRP thing, like I founded WRP in twenty seventeen, like I, I I registered the company, but I didn't start trading at all until uh, October of twenty twenty. Like like you were saying before, I guess um, you know, like I've got an engineering degree, and obviously, like yeah, twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen, um, spent spent some time overseas doing some pretty big international races and that type of stuff and never really like I wanted WRP to come to fruition. Don't get me wrong, but it was always that thing that I kind of saw as coming maybe later on in life, like after I stopped racing, like maybe in my thirties or whatever. Um, and then it was really just, um, it was really COVID that I was just sitting around bored. And to be honest with you, I had spare money that I hadn't spent just pouring down the drain of going racing. Um, so you know, I only started actually trading and and um, really making parts for WRP in like October 2020. Well, I'd made parts previously, but I only started selling to the public. So, um, but I've known Nigel for probably about, I don't know, I'd seen him around, I knew of him, we knew each other, whatever, and we, we'd known each other for maybe a year or so before that type of thing. But the point being is he, uh, when I started doing the WRP stuff, I got a little space um, that I'm at now up at Deakin University and at the time he was my neighbour so he had like a bay next door to me and uh, yeah, I'm not sure when it was, Chase. It was late It was late 2020 though, so like mm-hmm. November, December 2020 that Nigel had said to me like, hey, um, like he was obviously aware that my business was starting to take off pretty well, something that I didn't really expect. Um, but he's like, hey, like, you know, would you sit in on a conversation um, that I'm having with my friend Chase about this about this bike? We'd just like to kind of have you in on it to give some heuristical knowledge of of whether we're going down the right track. So um, yeah, went next door, sat in the conversation, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. I think Nigel or you had had said like, you know, thanks for your time, whatever. Would you want to be a third in this thing? Um, and for me, it was kind of a bit of a no-brainer. But um, 
I guess that's a, a convoluted answer to the question. Um, but yeah, I, I've been involved and yeah, first I really heard of the project was late 2020. So not very long, only well, 18 months to now, but um, it was a pretty quick turn, like from, from the three of us getting together until Proto 1 was only well, less than six months. So. so I guess I'd be curious to hear from you, Chase, a bit. You know, in earlier stage where you'd first gotten in touch with Nigel, you have this idea for a bike, you've modeled it in Fusion, but you haven't to that point really had a plan for how to build it. Kind of what were your design ideas behind the bike? What were you hoping to accomplish with it? And kind of what did that first design iteration look like? Originally, it was uh, an all-aluminum bike. So CNC rear end still. Or no, at the time, I was still thinking of doing like uh, like box tubing aluminum for the rear end with some CNC like dropout areas. And then kind of similar to what Nico's doing with his as far as tubular aluminum front end and tubular aluminum rear end with some CNC parts in there to obviously yeah, pretty conventional aluminum full suspension bike construction, yeah. So in that, my my original design goals, um, kind of coming from my car background, and I had studied a lot, um, just like kind of on my own, just of, um, back with my car hobby of just like vehicle dynamics and um, and vehicle suspension. And so you know, the kind of general car theme is, you know, low center of gravity is always better. And so that was one of the original intents, um, which is why I wanted to do a gearbox and why the shock is mounted where it is. I wanted to package those as closely together as, as I could. Um, and so went through a different, a few different iterations of suspension from single pivot, similar to say, like uh, forbidden um or and you know common saw um and then to the inverted horse length that we're using right now um and then also some like vpp style short link stuff as well and ended up that also based on kind of my own personal study in kinematics that I, I really preferred what the inverted horse link provided um, as far as leverage ratio and anti-squat and anti-rise um, go, those were kind of the three that I was mostly paying attention to at the time. And as I studied more, as I learned more about the bike, you know, I kind of, I started to focus more on all of the other aspects that, that roll into it, but kind of first off, those were the things that I was looking at. And then I was really just basing geo numbers based off of, you know, other common bikes, like, you know, just on trend type stuff before I really kind of dove into the, trying to study, you know, the biokinematics of how our bodies interact with frame and how they also interact with the suspension and <clears throat> what those forces look like and what, what makes a good handling bike. And that also came a lot with my relationship with Nick and us with Mick and us talking about, you know, geo that he prefers and from his writing experience, what, you know, different stuff feels like. And also just with a bunch of my friends, just try to ride a bunch of different bikes to see what I liked and what I didn't like. Um, and that's kind of ultimately what led me to the decisions that we've made thus far. Okay. So, but at that point you were thinking high pivot gearbox, low center of mass. Yeah. 
And yeah, and really like, yeah, the, the, I mean, the original main driver was just that low center of gravity and the, the high pivot didn't okay. come later until I, I don't remember when, I think it was late 2019 when uh, Forbidden came out with the Druid. And that is kind of what turned me on to thinking about trying to do it as a high pivot as well, because I originally didn't have it as a high pivot either. It was more closer to like when I was looking at the VPP or even, you know, DW style things. I was I was looking more similar to like where Santa Cruz has the shock mounted. Again, just trying to get stuff packaged low, but I didn't end up like in the kinematic of that as much. And then when I saw Forbidden's high pivot, I was like, oh wait, that would fit really, really well. Um and then I also started to read up on it too and look at all the benefits versus the drawbacks. And I was like, I think, I think it's worth it. And so again, that 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 was that became another element of like, okay, that's something that I, I definitely want to incorporate. Okay. And at this point, were you imagining this as a dedicated DH bike or something kind of more in the trail or enduro sort of range? Cause as we'll get into in a minute here, you've kind of adapted the platform in a couple of different directions, but what was the original plan? The original plan was an enduro bike. Um, uh, originally it was based around 170, 170 um, front and rear. Once I kind of, got settled on the layout then i was starting to play a little bit more just with the the fine tuning of it and then also the the act of like because there's i can in linkage you can put pivots wherever regardless of packaging um and so then you know so i think i'd figure something out in linkage and then i'd go into fusion and try to package it around a gearbox and like oh wait that doesn't work there's not enough clearance here and there and there so there was a lot of playing in in that realm, back and forth between obviously 2D and linkage and 3D and fusion, trying to figure out what was actually going to work. And the more I played around with it, the more I learned how kind of easy it is to make it shorter or longer travel without taking away from the natural kinematics that the layout had, um, just by changing the shock size and the shock stroke. Um, I, you know, like it is now, we can get a couple of different bikes out of the same bike just by swapping a shock and a fork. Um, so yeah, the original thought was just, just an enduro bike, something that was pretty heavy hitting. And this is before I even knew about the Norco range coming out. This is there. I mean, we're essentially developing it at the same time. Um, there's happened to, you know, get released right before ours did, um, as far as the prototype goes versus, you know, the range actually coming out for sale, but Anyway, um, so it was definitely like right on market with what, you know, the range would be. That was the original intent. Um, but after more, like for me, more and more writing experience and then to talking with Mick um, and Nigel and they're both definitely more DH oriented and the more and more that I enjoy bike parks and, I'll pedal up just to go down. Um, but I just prefer, you know, DH riding in general. And so that's where it, the kind of the turn later on towards adding a little bit more DH focus versus just enduro kind of came to be just out of honestly, just riding preference. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like the thought that if you kind of design it around, so that the kinematics work in the longest travel configuration, you can always shorten that up by just putting a shorter stroke shock on it and you're not changing a whole lot. So 
Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the other things too, Mick and I talked a lot about was the idea of when this actually does come for sale, like really trying to tailor something to the privateer market, especially nowadays when a lot of athletes are doing both EWS and World Cup downhill. And to do both, you got to have two frames. And when it comes to a privateer, trying to lug around two bikes and meet all the schedule and all that, you know, it's, it's a lot more to manage. Whereas if you could have the same frame with a couple of small component changes where you could go race in EWS one weekend and go race world cup downhill the next weekend on the same bike where you've got the same characteristics, you know, the bike's going to handle and feel the same, but you're just tailoring it to the riding that you're doing. It seemed like a win-win. And so that was one of the things that we wanted to focus on as well was providing a bike that could do both and do both really well um, and kind of help out that privateer market, you know, in trying to do multiple sports or disciplines of the sport. Yeah, that makes a bunch of sense. And uh, so kind of going from there, I mean, you've got this idea, you now got your fabricator and nodule, you've got, well, a bit later, Mick comes on to help out with some more engineering stuff, but you guys showed off the V1 prototype last year. What were kind of the next steps like from getting from where you were at, at the point where you contacted Nigel in the first place from like, Hey, I need someone to help me build this thing. Are you interested to actually having a rideable prototype ready to go? It, it honestly all happened pretty quickly. Um, we, Nigel presented the idea of the handmade bicycle show and it seemed like the perfect deadline for us to actually make something happen and a really cool opportunity to just show it off. And so we actually made some, quite a few adjustments in order to make the handmade show happen. Um, Cause prior to that, the design had evolved into us talking about actually doing it in CNC halves, like the front triangle, similar to like an active five or, or pole. Um, but obviously the timing on that and finding a CNC shop that could do a cut that big locally was pretty hard. And so Nigel was like, Hey, why don't we do the front end out of steel and we'll do the front end or the rear end out of aluminum. Um, you know, I'm, he's like, I work with chromo, you know, all day, every day. So that would be really easy for me to fabricate. So why don't we look at doing that? And so I quickly whipped up an idea of, what we could do with just some simple chromoly tubing. And, uh, and that's kind of how V1 came to be. I mean, I think it was, I mean, Nick, I think it was only like a couple of weeks. Yeah, it was pretty gnarly. I got back from a race in Tasmania, like national DH champs, which was, I believe at the end of March in 2021. But anyway, got back from that, had a bunch of stuff on and then handmade was coming up and we didn't really have, I get like dragging our feet wasn't the right word, isn't the right term, but I guess like we didn't have a goal in mind. So like, you know, we were progressing the design and whatever, but without actually getting the fire up our ass, if you know what I mean. And then the idea of handmade came up. I think they might've even reached out to Nigel. I'm not, not a hundred percent sure on the yeah, details. I don't, there, but, I don't know how that came about exactly, but, but yeah, N- Nigel had, had, uh, had been in contact with the handmade and, and um, yeah, it was about three weeks out. Um, which was like, yeah, fucking huge push. <laughs> and uh, we're like, oh, well, 
and like, if I'm honest with you, I don't know if I've ever told the boys this, but to be honest with you, I was like, because I was pretty new to the project at that stage, like, you know, only say five months in or whatever. And I was like, fuck, man, this could be a full flop. Like, <laughs> you know, we've got a design on the, on the screen, but, you know, we haven't actually built, built something like, and, uh, and Nigel and I talked about it a little bit. We're like, well, if it comes out and it's just fucked, we're like, we just won't go. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'd contacts, I'd contacted my machinist and, uh, sent him off a bunch of parts. Um, I had just put together like a batch order for some, some of my own WRP parts and, uh, rang him straight up. I'm like, dude, like, can you put this rear end on? And it, but it needs to be like, it needs to be on the bike in three weeks. So like it needs to be manufactured in like two. And, uh, he's a legend. He, he turned it around. No worries. Um, but, but the, I guess more my point is without getting caught up in the detail, more my point is, is like, you know, three weeks out, we just pulled the trigger. Like whatever we had on the screen, we just did. So, uh, yeah, V1, like when it, I still remember the night, like Nigel and I had put it together in his bay because this is the kind of thing about building your own frame is it's kind of hard to get an idea of what it's going to look like until you actually get the whole thing assembled. Like it looks good in the jig, whatever. I mean, anything looks good in the jig, but it's not until you actually put forks and shocking and wheels on and everything that you actually kind of see it there and, and see how the geometry lays out in a real world setting. And uh, we pulled it off. I was like, "Fuck, man, this looks this looks pretty good." <laughs> so, yeah, we, that's kind of um, yeah. We, I think everyone was a bit surprised that uh, yeah, like whatever we had sort of sitting there on the screen three weeks out, we just pulled the trigger on and uh, and did. And that's why I think when people have said. You know, without trying to get too far ahead of the conversation, but when people have said like, "Oh, V two looks so much more refined," it's like, "Well, yeah," because V one was just <laughs> just sent it. So you know, V two, like for instance, that V two rear end that's that had been sitting in my cupboard here at WLP workshop for like six months. Because yeah, we we've been sort of very far ahead of of what you've seen on social media and whatever. I guess because yeah, V one was was pulled together pretty quick. Yeah, that's quite a turnaround, and I guess there's just nothing like a deadline to make something happen. And uh, yeah, well, it's, it, it was even a little bit the same with this year's stuff. Like mm-hmm. you know, as I was saying, that the, the the swing arm had been sitting in my in my cupboard here for for six months. I'd had a few things like uh, the majority of the three D printed lugs I'd had for quite, for quite a few months, whatever. And yeah, we'd pretty well had it had it all um, ready to go. But uh, but mucking around with a, a few designs and stuff still, and even this year it was kind of the same. It's, um, you know, I've used analog- the analogy before. Um, even with racing, like you know, if you're if you've got a big race coming up, if it's three months away, or whatever, like you'll train for it. But and without going off tangent, but I think this was kind of the hard thing with COVID and all of that. Like you know, if there's no racing, then it's pretty easy to fall out of the slump of of um, consistent training and, and all of that. And it's the same with same with making a bike. Like if you've got a if you've got a deadline and whatever, then certainly certainly gets your ass in gear. Yeah, that'll do it. And so to talk a little more about that V1 Proto, we went into this a bit last time you were on Nick, but uh 
mean, it was proper DH bike and sort of set up as such and high pivot, like I said, machined aluminum rear triangle, welded steel front, and, uh, and then had the provision for a gearbox. But then you kind of, I guess a little after the fact almost, realized that you had this opportunity to mess around with a sort of, I guess, reincarnation of the Honda RN01, if you want to call it that, where you were doing a uh, sort of derailleur drivetrain in the front triangle situation. Well, you know what's you know what's funny, and it, it kind of you know it, it's consistent with my last point is uh, Chase and I talked about it a little bit. I, I sent a, a like a picture to the group chat. I don't know when it was, man. It was like October or something, twenty twenty one. And because uh, I was just sitting here, and like I kind of do this to be honest with you, I'm a bit of an idiot when it's like this. But some some evenings, like I'll just kind of sit here and rock my chair back and look at you know, look at something like just look at the aesthetic of it and just kind of daydream on stuff. Um, you know, got a little notepad and sketch some stuff. And I was looking at the at the Trinity frame and I don't know what prompted it, whether I'd been looking at Hondas or I, I can't remember what prompted it, but I was looking at it and I'm like, fuck, man, I reckon like I've got a fair bit of space kind of above the shop there. I reckon like you could pretty well put the drivetrain on the front end of that bike and it was uh i don't know it was like the frame definitely wasn't designed for it put it that way like it was an, an adaptation that i was like fuck i reckon that could be close to fitting um and then yeah what people don't realize is i literally like i bought the derailleur spent like an afternoon or whatever bolting it onto the frame i cut a chain whacked it on and uh, lo and behold, it worked. Um, it certainly wasn't perfect. Like, you know, the, the gap between the derailleur and the cassette was, was a little bit too large. So it would shift fine in the workshop. But I think if you were riding it around, you know, that gap's too large. So I'd want to bend the chain and maybe get a bit of chain slap and whatever. But, you know, lo and behold, it worked. And I hadn't really thought much of it. So I was just like, oh, that's kind of cool. So I took a video here in the workshop posted it on my Instagram and I just pissed off to my parents for the weekend and literally just turned my phone off and, um, yeah, got back on like Monday and uh, stuff was just, stuff was just gnarly. People are like, you know, a lot of people were were pumped about it. Some people kind of, I don't know, commented a bit of heat. <laughs> but I was like, I, I don't think that's kind of thing. Like, you know, we didn't put really any time into it. It was like, oh, this might actually work and, um yeah whacked it on and and gave it a crack like i looked at my instagram only last night because i've kind of just lost track of stuff like that and that just that one video they literally took a five second video of um that's at almost six million views now <laughs> so. and just on your page i mean i even just was scrolling through the explore page and it popped up again someone else had shared it yeah and i I'm, i can't count the amount of times that that one video has been oh dude yeah, it's, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's wild. It is. It's wild. And so, um, yeah, anyway, it's it's kind of a little bit, uh, I don't know, a little bit random in that way. I was just like, I hey, guess it was. And, like, part of me, like some of my stuff, I've kind of kept really close-knit, you know, like the center hub stuff. Like I was 
super, super quiet about it. Like even some of my closest friends until it launched, no one even knew knew about it. Like I was real just tight-lipped. Um, and then some other products like I've been really tight-lipped about stuff, mainly because you've put a lot of money into time and development and patents and stuff like that and you just don't want it to go pear-shaped. Um, but the funny thing is that that one was like the total opposite. I was just like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, take a little reel and post it and it's just gone fucking nuts. But in saying that, and, um, you know, I won't give too much away, but, you know, I've pretty well finished. I've been real quiet on the newest iteration of that gearbox. But, um, yeah, I've, you know, literally just finished the newest reiteration that I've actually put like six months into and it's, yeah, pretty wild. Okay. Well, so just from kind of following along on Instagram, you went through a lot of iterations on that theme over, I don't, yeah, what year plus it's been now or going on a year anyway. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't know how much you want to share about the particulars of where it's at at this point, but yeah, would be curious to hear anything you're willing to share at least. Yeah. Yeah. So like in all honesty, from the stuff I've shared, I've really put a few hours into, you know, the gearbox of stuff I've shared. Like, yeah, I, you know, I haven't, you know, that first one, was an afternoon here in the workshop, took a little video. And then the second one that I posted, I was kind of screwing around with it a little bit. Um, probably worked myself into a little bit of a hole because the second one that I made, it was like, oh, that's really cool. But then um, I, this is like anything. Once you get a little bit, I get a little bit obsessed with with things and kind of just go down a tunnel of, of pursuing it. And it worked fine. It shifted fine. But the thing is it wouldn't have shifted fine under power, you know, in the real world, if you were grinding uphill, it wouldn't want to shift because basically you're trying to shift against the direction that the stepper motor in the in the axis is trying to shift. So, say with like the center hub on in the like in the work stand was perfect, but under power it wouldn't have really, and that's like defeating the purpose of of doing the gearbox. So, I just kind of I just kind of parked it. We had a lot of different design discussions and a lot of different ideas yeah um, how to package it yeah where to how to orientate uh like everything to make sure that like makes sense like the loads are distributed correctly and i can't t- i mean you and i both sketched up again I, I can't count how many different ideas on how to lay the thing out yeah um, i guess yeah the the ones that came to f- like the 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 reiterations that actually came to um, actually making and putting on the bike we've, we're up until this one that I've been doing recently, we've only had two because like Chase is saying, like there's many ideas that you float around being like, whoa, like that could work. And then you start to kind of look into it and you're like, oh, idiot. Like you didn't, you didn't account for this or like, um, yeah. Um, but, but then yeah, if you, and we won't go down, won't go down this because, I think for for our integrity chase, we'll keep it kind of undercover. But then, if you want to go outside of, you know, cassette and chain, Chase and I have talked a lot about different stuff in theory that we haven't sort of pursued in the real world. But the newest one, say like V three of the cassette and chain gearbox, kind of came at. Uh, at national champs this year was just kind of funny. Um, I don't know. I think race weekends are always good for for designing spo for me at least. I, I think it's cool. Um, 
yeah, I don't know what it is. You just get a bit of an adrenaline adrenaline rush, or I, I, I don't know what it is. It's kind of cool. You just kind of uh, in the scene. So I was, uh, yeah, it was like the night before finals. I was just chilling out in my swag, trying to get to sleep, and I just had this idea for how I could mount this thing. Uh, and then got home, made a few mounts, and it kind of it worked. Um, but as Chase was saying, like with packaging and that, like, you know, packaging's quite important. I mean, you can make anything work, but whether you can actually get it on the bike is another thing. And, like, as a side note, I think that's the difficult thing with the bike industry is, and it's a good thing too, but, like, I remember Nigel saying, like, um, you know, fabricating cars and motorcycles and whatever compared to a bicycle is actually quite easy because a bike, the space is so small um, it, everything's in plain eye, so you can't just like with a car, you can't just like whack another gusset on in the roll cage, and it'll never be seen. Like everything's in plain sight, and you've got to keep like weight's important. You can't just weld a gusset on and just do it because you know. And it's kind of the same with the with the gearbox thing. Like, yeah, things will work in theory, but whether you can package it's another thing. So um, anyway, kind of gone and been a bit of a loop, but. Yeah, this idea that kind of sprung into my mind at at Medina has had a sort of fair bit of develop, development. So, made a few things, and um, hopefully, in the next week or so, I'll post something about it. I'm certainly not going to kind of keep it too under wraps. Like this is kind of I don't know. I've learned a lot about um, I don't know without trying to sound like too much of a hippie or whatever. But like I've kind of learned a lot about myself too with this whole. Thing because it, I kind of feed off the energy of of people's opinions in the bike industry, right? So it's like I think that's why the race weekends are really good for for coming up with new ideas because you're around all the boys and you you're talking about this and you, you're pushing each other like you want to do well, and I think that just promotes you to to think about stuff. Um, and what I was going to say was sometimes like with me my best like product development stages are where like, well, I know it's not perfect, but I'm going to post it anyway, see what people say, um, whether it be love or hate, like people see what people say. And uh, for some reason it just kind of, I don't know, inspires you for the next reiteration. Um, I think for me, like oh, everyone's different, but for me that's that's really cool. Yeah. And that's kind of been one of the prerogatives too, with this whole project is like really sharing through social media, like what it takes to build a bike, like, and bring something from idea to a, a sellable product that someone else can buy. Um, Cause for the most part in the bike industry, you don't get to see that. You don't get to see all these different development stages of different ideas whether they end up working and coming to fruition or not like they don't really share that and that's definitely something that i wanted to make a point of was like for the most part like we're going to be an open book and just share what we're doing what we're thinking about what we're trying because i think one it's it helps inspire other people but also helps inspire us because we also get some really cool feedback um from you know other people across the world that are also engineers or bike enthusiasts that are like, wait, Hey, you didn't think about this or, you know, what about this or that? And it's like, Oh shoot. Yeah. Like Mick was saying, we didn't even think about that. Um, 
And it's been, it's been really cool to interact with people over these ideas that we've just decided to actually do something about instead mm-hmm. of just keep them in hidden in the notebook and eventually get to them. Um, and I think that's one of the cool things too, with like the prototype one was because in the nature of its design, it really lended itself to have this gearbox idea and other ideas because it was kind of this open platform in a sense, because we created a lot more space in that shock slash BB area, you know, it, it lended itself to say, Hey, what else could we do with this space down here? If that's still packaged in it in a decent way and not going to interfere with the rider, but make the rider's experience better. I also think it's, it's super important because I was thinking about this the other day, like, and again, I don't want to speak on behalf of Chase and Nigel, like, well, speak on behalf of myself and I, but, but I, I think I'm, I'm covering the Trinity base here too. Um, and yeah, disappointed that, uh, we, we couldn't get Nigel on the call. Hopefully kind of the next one, he's flying back from California at the, at the moment. He might be asleep with a heap of jet lag. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I like, yeah, I was thinking about this the other day in regards to my own sort of product development thing. Like, as I was saying at the start, like I, I didn't even assume that WRP was going to become a thing. Like I'm just a guy that loves riding bikes and I happen to be an engineer, <laughs> you know, it was mainly because a lot of people were saying to me at the races, like you do like, what do you do for work? And I'm like, Oh, I make some of this shit. And they're like, fuck man. Like, can you make a linkage or a stem? Or, you know, so it's happened kind of organically, but like, I think the most important thing, and I think that Chase and Nigel kind of share this as well is that, unlike a big corporation is that like, I don't know, we, we don't have an ego, like I'm not trying to pretend to be someone I'm not. Like I have confidence in the fact that I ride my bike and I love riding my bike and whenever I can, I, I try to ride and, you know, um, I've got an engineering qualification, but I'm also surrounded by people who like riding bikes and are very knowledgeable and whatever. So, yeah, try not to have really an ego with with anything. It's like put stuff out and, um, yeah, just try to adapt as you go and and listen to what people have to say. And I think that's kind of the perfect recipe for, for one, being authentic with what you're making because, you know, it's actually what people want because you're listening to their feedback. Um, and not trying to shove something down their throat, like you know, a five hundred reach is what you need because of our internal data. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that just went down a off on a tangent, but, but I think it's really important. I think that's one of the coolest things about this whole project is just how much of the development you're putting out in the open and getting to see what goes into it and be along for the ride has been awesome. So that's maybe a good place to kind of pivot into talking about the V2 Proto now, which you've been showing off for a little bit. And so I guess I'd just be curious to hear both of your takes on what you learned from building the V1 and what that made you want to change about V2 and where you went with that bike. I think we learned everything by making the V1. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I learned a lot. I'll say it, I'll say it again. Like, people think making a bike's easy like it's not easy and the other thing too is i mean it's a different beast making in no way criticizing anyone any other company or anything like that but it's a totally different thing making 
the platform that we've made compared to even say like a single pivot. Like it becomes so much more complicated as soon as you try to incorporate the things we've tried to incorporate, you know, virtual high pivot, gearbox, all of that type of stuff. Like it it really is kind of like a kind of pushing the boundaries if you wanna if you wanna say so. It's not as easy as slapping it together and it, and it kind of pops out at the end. So making V1, I think, was a learning curve for all of us because we were like, ah, oh, yeah, we should have known that and obviously we didn't. So <laughs> let's yeah. correct and, and move into V2. And I think that's why why we all like the project but also why V2's come so far because it's actually um, engaging for us too because we're like, oh, okay, well, V1 popped out like really well and like we had a me and Nigel had a ball riding it um and we really didn't put that much work in comparatively so if we take what we learned from v1 um and kind of apply it to a v2 and beyond then I think we can get something kind of really good um so yeah I mean v1 yeah v1 was like it was sick to ride and all that but um it was certainly good just for our own juristical knowledge kind of gain yeah i mean like for me i mean i have no qualifications whatsoever to be a bicycle designer um other than just pure passion um so speaking of stuff like we learned from v1 to implement in v2 you know i did all the design work for this and and uh, and mick you know had his engineering input on it but one of the things that we simply missed on v1 be careful proper. about what you go into here. <laughs> <laughs> it's simple. I mean, it was just like properly preloading bearings. Like I didn't, I didn't put like the right reliefs to, you know, load the inside race versus the outside race. So like the suspension action on the V1 moved, but it didn't move beautifully fluid or, you know, anything like that. And so that was definitely something that we instantly changed right away. Yeah. I think a big part of that too was, was being rushed for the, for the handmade show. Like, yeah. you know, it, it, like stuff like I, I feel as though that's kind of um, like it's a good thing to talk about, but I, I think it's a little bit, maybe a little bit inaccurate because we were just like, well, whatever we've got on the paper, we're just pulling the trigger on getting machines right now. Um, and uh, I hate to use the analogy, but I think sometimes it's right. Is like you almost mistake your way to a perfect product. Like, you know, it's, it's never going to come out. I know what it's like with my own stuff, right? Like I'll have something catted and it'll look perfect. And I'm like, dude, stoked on that and machine it and it'll come out. And I'm like, oh, hell man, that's not really what I was envisioning. Like I wanted to look a little bit different, whatever. Um, But sometimes, like I was saying, like, you know, if if you try not to have an ego with it, but trust in the fact that, look, I like, we all ride like I love riding. It's what I want to do every day. And, um, you know, we're, we're surrounding ourselves with really knowledgeable people and, and whatnot. For lack of a better term, almost, yeah, mistake your way to a perfect product. Like don't get like, yep, see the mistake. Don't get bogged down on it. Be like, all right, we need to address it. Um, you know, but but certainly don't come with like a preconceived notion of we know exactly what we're doing and it's going to be the perfect product from the get-go because I almost think that that's what a lot of big corporations do wrong. It's almost like 
you know, force a product down the consumer's throat because they say from the get-go what the best product is. And that's why I think you just kind of, you're seeing a lot of geometries change and all that type of stuff. So, yeah, to kind of circle back, I think with us it's like, well, you know, we'll develop along the way and what we, what we learn will incorporate. Yeah. Hopefully that, that gets us to the ideal product. So, like, one of the other focuses in, in moving to V2 and one of the things we wanted to address was the, the manufacturing side of things and how do, we, how do we improve that so we can, as a small company and a small brand, keep things consistent and accurate and, you know, produce a good end product. And that's where the idea of the, doing the 3D lugs for the head tube and the seat tube and the down cone um, or down to like a cone junction area came about because those were um, hard areas to form either sheet metal for, or the amount of fabrication that went into, especially like the head tube area and making that happen. It just takes a lot of man hours. And so one of the ideas that we played with was what, what would it look like if we just 3d printed all those, those areas um, just to simplify the fabrication side of things and then looking forward into like, okay, if we're going to produce, you know, 20, 30 of these at a time, you know, what's going to make it easiest for the fabricator to, to replicate and keep consistent. Um, and so that's kind of what led us down that path. Uh, and so far, I mean, I think we're, we're pretty happy with, there's some fine tuning that we need to do um, mm-hmm. in those areas, which is one of the things we're, we're working on, but overall, I mean, it, I think it, it definitely was a big step up from V1 and it also lended itself to kind of adding to the aesthetic of the bike um, and kind of keeping the proportions and the flow of the tubes, you know, down to that junction area, keeping it pretty fluid and um, definitely looking a lot more like a finished product, uh, which is one thing we're really, really happy with, with V2. It just looks a lot yeah. closer to what we want the bike to look like. And I also think like, um, quality control is really important too. I mean, and where quality, to phrase it better, I guess, like where mistakes could leak in is if you're, um, you know, metering and notching tubes every single time you make a frame and particularly if you're to be offering custom sizes. So every single meter and notch is different, then that's quite easy for a mistake to, to leach in. Um, so not only for the for the consumer, like we want them to get the right product, obviously, um, but for our own um, sort of due diligence too, like we, we can't be affording to to waste frames like, oh, I notched that tube wrong or that one's in the bin. You know, so from a quality control thing, I think it's uh, it's really important too. Um, and, you know, I think the the printed lugs are – I mean, we're not the first to do it. There's been other companies to, to do printed lugs. Um I think that the that the end product down the track of how we execute it will be different, of course. Like, and Chase and I have discussed um, how we can do that, but um, you know, I think that's a common theme, particularly in custom custom frames and whatever. Is not only does it does printed lugs open up that opportunity, but it also decreases potential problems as well. Yeah, it makes a bunch of sense, both from kind of the perspective of making it easier to do more custom stuff and making it easier to do things right when you're doing a lot of custom stuff and have a lot more variation in what you're shooting for. And for folks who maybe haven't seen the bike, we're talking 3d printed steel lugs with tubes welded in between for the front triangle. 
and then the rear triangles still machined aluminum, right? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, so I mean, there's obviously the big construction change there going to the 3D printed lugged front triangle from just kind of more standard welded tubes on V1. But tell us a bit more about what else you changed because there's some sort of a different adaptability in terms of travel and a bunch more stuff baked into V2 that's new and interesting. Yeah, so there's a flip chip um, and Chase, um, you <laughs> pick me up if I'm if I miss anything here, but yeah, there's there's a flip chip at the at the trunnion mount, so at the front of the shock. Um, that's a twenty mil uh, differential in flip chip. So basically, um, yeah, you can run say a two twenty five eye to eye shock for a DH setting, which will give you like two hundred mil at like a seventy five mil stroke. Or um, yeah, you can flip flip chip around, make it twenty mil shorter, and run a two hundred five trunnion shock. So um, you can run with like a sixty five mil stroke. Um, so that's kind of cool and it kind of goes back into what Chase was saying before about um, potentially you can have one bike for multiple different disciplines with different suspensions set up. What I like, um, I think that's cool for a couple of reasons, but one being like you'll hear guys say all the time, like, and pe- many people have done this previously, but just say like, like Jared Graves at South African World Champs a few years ago now, like he raced his, his trail bike. Um, or his enduro bike and you're like, you know, I've just been riding it more. I feel more comfortable on it. And I think that's a really important point. And like I've been, like I did DH Nationals this year and I raced my my trail bike, like 140 mil bike for the same reason. I was like, well, I haven't been riding my downhill bike. And I think that's another important point too is not only um, I, yeah, I think being comfortable on your machine and kind of having it as second nature is super, super important. So not only say what Chase is saying before, if you're a privateer and you can take one bike to all the races, not only is it is that good from a financial standpoint, but the thing is you'll probably ride better too because it's not you're not adapting to two different machines. It is the same bike. So like, you know, the, the cockpit and whatever will feel familiar to you, what you're changing is say the suspension stroke. Um, and I think the way that we've done that is sort of really cool. Um, and Chase can go into a little bit more, I guess, but like with the flip chip setting is on the shock is that you're retaining the same leverage curve and whatever, but basically where it's cutting off, like the, the downhill version just gives you more bottom, which is what you want out of a downhill bike. Like you just want it to handle bigger, faster hits better. Um, but as far as like the ride height, the geo, um, yeah, the curves are the are the same, which I think is super super important. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you should be able to run your same your same spring rate between both settings. As far as like one sixty to two hundred, it's it's the same starting leverage rate. It's just the ending leverage rate that changes, and it's pretty um, like the slope on the curve is pretty steady like there's no it doesn't it's not like a bell curve like you typically see in like you know a short dual link bike it's pretty straight or like in the slope and then as you get towards bottom out it drop it like pretty rapidly drops off and so you're going to get a lot of good bottom out resistance um but you're still going to be able to achieve full travel um and so it's really suited in full dh mode it's really suited to coil shock um definitely at this state wouldn't recommend an air shock for, you know, the DH setting. Um, 
but in uh, shorter travel settings, you could definitely run an air shock. Um, it worked great with both, but either way, yeah, the idea being is, you know, it's tune the travel to the track that you're riding. So even if you are riding DH, like you don't need all the travel, you know, depending on the track setting, like that South Africa, you know, national champs, you don't necessarily need 200 mils of travel to make your bike work efficiently and work well. And if anything, you might need a different, you know, uh, a different amount of travel to make, you know, that bike work best. So it's really just giving the rider the flexibility to tune the bike how they need to while giving them the same ride characteristics, no matter how they set it up. Yeah, I think you're totally right on that that familiarity and comfort on the bike is big. Frankly, it's one of the things that's occasionally, like I kind of struggle with a little bit in this job where I am just testing a whole truckload of bikes and jumping between stuff every other ride practically it feels like sometimes and it's hard to even you're on stuff that you've worked out a setup on you like the bike things are feeling good but when you're not having that consistency and being on the same bike reliably just kind of honing in that last call it five percent of being really dialed on it and going after it's harder and so that absolutely makes sense for someone who's racing both enduro and downhill say to have something that's adaptable so that it can be as consistent as possible between the two while still having a bike that's really properly set up for both makes heaps of sense i think the other thing is too and and chase can probably talk more on it as well is like and something probably more important that we haven't discussed but like traditionally speaking um the reason why you have two bikes is because the way that the downhill kinematics are tuned is that it will pedal like a piece of shit. And the way that an enduro bike is traditionally tuned is that you want to maximize its pedaling efficiency, which means its descending capability is compromised. That's just the nature of how bikes have been designed. And we can go like right into that. But something that we've tried to do with the Trinity, and this is where I think you're seeing stuff like the Norco range really come into its own, even like the forbidden um, really coming to its own like Conifer and obviously like he's crushing World Cup DH races and it's a 154 mil travel bike but then dudes are racing it at, at EWS's they've kind of hit the Goldilocks zone where they can have a bike that descends like a DH bike but can pedal like an enduro bike and we've only seen that in the last sort of couple of years and that's sort of the angle that we're going with the Trinity particularly if you really want to get into kinematics of like idler position and all that type of stuff you know because we've talked about having say like a an idler position that's uh, that's adjustable so you know you can change your kinematic depending on on the track so even if you were doing like an ews one weekend and you wanted to say um increase its its anti-squat so you wanted to pedal better you could have it in one setting and then you go into a dh and you want it to plow better but you're compromising the pedaling but you don't care because the downhill race you change it so you know I, I think that's kind of the thing it's like you know people in the last 10 years or so with enduro and downhill it's like oh well you know they're two different bikes and it's like well yeah because the way suspension design is traditionally laid out is you kind of have to but um yeah i think we've see, seen recently particularly with say forbidden and, and norco i mean now even the norco like the norco factory team are on the range it's just with an aftermarket yoke which you know, I'm making here at WIP, but um, it's proof that those those bikes are cross disciplinary. 
And I think it's, you know, it's important too to recognize too in both disciplines of the sport, like they're getting like enduro is getting a lot closer to, to DH in the types of courses that they're running. It's just that you have to pedal between, you know, your, your stages. So I think it also warrants a, a bike like ours, which is more closely tuned um, to kind of be in the middle, but good at both. And I don't, I think there's a lot less compromises you have to make nowadays. If we've got adjustable setup, like we've kind of got, mm-hmm. so with a really small tweak, you can have it the best downhill bike. And then with a really small other tweak, you can tweak it, you know, for the next weekend to make it yeah. perfect enduro bike. I think that's, that's really powerful. Yeah. And with the anti-squat, you know, curve in general too, like one of the other things that we're, we're testing out um, on V2 versus V1 is we're doing a, a front triangle fixed idler on V2 versus on V1, we were using an iTrack system where the either was located on the seat stay, essentially a link to the suspension. The interesting thing about V1 in that is that the way I set it up and one of the theories we were testing was if we made the anti-squat and the anti-rise the same, um, how, how would that feel? And, um, so your, your braking characteristics and your accelerating characteristics essentially would be the same as far as your input into the bike. And then on the second one, the way the curve is set is it's, except for the end of the travel, it's, it's pretty like essentially in the sag range and where you're pedaling, it's pretty much flat, um, at 120%. And which we've kind of figured out in theory is, it's kind of the optimal is you need a slightly higher than hundred percent any squat to counteract your, like your body's forces into the bike versus just the pedaling forces. Um, and the cool thing with that too is, is, and what we haven't been able to test yet, but something that we're looking into testing is, is changing the anti-squat level per size of bike, because generally the, as the bike size goes up, the weight of the rider goes up and they have some slightly different needs. And so we could actually tweak the anti-squat level per size of the bike, um, in order to meet, you know, those different size riders as, as well as, you know, tuning it to, you know, course setup or type of riding but those are that's definitely another difference that we're testing out between the two yeah and i think that's that makes a bunch of sense and one thing that people kind of often overlook about anti-squat is that it it's dependent on the height of the center of mass of the whole rider bike system and so you need to make a pretty good assumption about where that is in order to then go calculate anything that really means anything in the real world and right presumably on a bigger bike you got that higher because you've got a taller person riding it but yeah a lot of bikes are not really moving pivots around to account yeah. for that so yeah there, yeah there's very few that are and quite frankly i can't think of any off the top of my head that are. i know there's like at least one or two that are tuning kinematics per size but i think cannondale yeah. on the jekyll they did that yeah uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty good. But no, right. It's certainly the exception rather yeah. than the rule. Uh, so yeah, a lot of cool stuff happening there. I guess be kind of curious to hear wh- what you guys are willing to share on what is next. When might people be able to buy one of these? If it's late enough to talk about that, I, kind of whatever the next steps are, I guess. So at the moment, like we're deep into, uh, we're deep into version three, like, yeah, version three, I guess, has um, like it's not going to be next year's handmade. It's going to be launched, put that way. Like it's going to be much earlier than that because I think, like we're saying, like V one 
for Handmade last year was just a full wing it session. It was like whatever we've got on paper, we're just we're just making and taking it to the show. So V two was developed, you know, quite quite prematurely before this this show. Um, so what we displayed only a few weeks ago really is old tech compared to where we're up to on paper. So, like, you know, we're pretty well kind of at, like, a V3 level already. So, um, yeah, we're looking to to make that, which, um, fingers crossed, will be what resembles pretty well, like, a, a commercial, like, you know, commercially available product. So, yeah, that that's kind of the hope. Like, V2 is pretty well there. There's just a couple of things we had to iron out, um, again, Anyone that hasn't sort of been through the process of designing a bike probably wouldn't um, wouldn't pick it. But you know, there's just a few things we need to sort of iron out that that are fully addressed in the you know the next one. So um, yeah, I don't want to put uh, I don't want to make any promises, but the the figure that's been chucked around is by the end of the year. Yeah, um, and that's, I think that's, that's, that's the goal we're shooting for. That's the the deadline we're trying to set for ourselves. Um, but the ultimate goal is to produce the the best quality product we can for the customer. Yeah. There's no sense in rushing it if we don't feel like it's to the standard that we want someone to ride our bike as well as you know safety. But it's you know that that's definitely the intent is to have something available by the end of the year. Yeah, and like you know, all things considered, I think that that that, that that's doable. Um, we were up to it's um, it's certainly achievable. Um, then there's like the the smaller intricacies, just in regards to um, you know kind of the the running of the Trinity business. I mean, as we've got to now, um, you know, we're just sort of, sort of three lads giving it a crack. I know, like from a WRB standpoint, and like my own thing, like you know, ninety five percent of the time is is caught up in running the business, not actually making parts. So, um, yeah, we've, we've got to iron out a few few more details on that side of things like, you know, how we're going to be taking pre-orders, how many pre-orders, how much, <laughs> um, you know, that that type of stuff. So that, that'll take a little bit of time and any and is yet to come. But um, Well, certainly looking forward to seeing what comes next and uh, – just it's been a blast following along with this whole project up to this point and the direction it's going seems awfully promising. So this has been super cool. Really appreciate you both taking the time to chat about all of it and yeah, just excited to see what the future holds. Yeah, of course. Hopefully we can, uh, hopefully we can send you one for a test, David. Would like to make that happen. Yeah. Hopefully it blows your socks off. You don't (laughs) want to write anything else. Then you tell everyone about it. That'd be great. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's make it happen. Looking forward to it. No worries, dude. It'll be a, it'll be a, a well overdue trip from Australia. Put it that way. There we go. Well, yeah, we were chatting a little off air before we started, and then uh, you were talking about maybe heading this way. So, hopefully, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe. Fingers crossed. We'll be in touch. Yeah, if work if work permits. If people want parts, you got to make them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that. But it's been awesome talking to you both. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on and uh, we'll be in touch. Lots more good stuff happening soon. Anytime, dude. Yeah. Thanks, David. 
All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. And if you're enjoying these conversations, then we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. I also want to say thanks to Mick and Chase for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll talk to you again very soon. Bye, everybody.